Over the course of the last several months, we've been considering the multitude of problems that the Corinthian church faced and have recognized that the root problem in Corinth was one of pride and selfishness, which had led to disunity in the local assembly. And also over the course of the last several months, we've taken these observations and made application to our own contemporary situation and realized that when a church is marked by selfishness rather than love, all bets are off with respect to the effectiveness of that ministry. Anything can happen in a church that's marked by selfishness and not love. The ironic thing is that if Gallup would have been around or Rasmussen back in the first century, and they would have polled the first century Corinthian church, I would wager that most of them would have privately considered themselves to be loving. And they would have considered the other guy to be the one who was selfish. Selfishness would have been a problem for other people, not for themselves. But now, as we've turned the page, so to speak, and we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we enter new territory theological territory, if you will. And this is kind of an interesting structure in that most of the time in Paul's Paul's letters, he begins with theology and then makes the application after he's established the theology. If you think of Ephesians, the first three chapters are heavy, heavy theology. And then the last three chapters are application of that theology. Same way with his letter to the Colossians. First two theology, second two applications. In the book of Romans, the first 12 chapters, heavy theology, or first 11 chapters, heavy theology, and the last part of the book, heavy application. But here, he's kind of done it in a backwards way. Of course, it's not backwards if the Holy Spirit is leading you to do it. But he started with the application, and now it's going to be almost a divinely inspired, oh, by the way. Oh, by the way, there's some heavy theology behind what I've been asking you to apply. Eighty years have passed since Karl Barth's reflection of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but these words continue to provide a valid conclusion as to the purpose of this chapter. He wrote, chapter 15 forms not only the close and crown of the whole epistle, but also provides the key to its meaning, from which light is shed onto the whole, and it becomes intelligible as a unity. We don't adhere to an ethical system that prioritizes love over selfishness because of some philosophy, which, by the way, would have been the cultural norm in Corinth to adhere to something because it, was, it made sense philosophically. But that's not what we do. We adhere to an ethical system that prioritizes love over selfishness, not because of a philosophy, but because of a person the person of Jesus Christ. And we give priority to that person with a capital P, not simply because of his words, but also because of his works, the greatest of which was his resurrection. Jesus validated everything that he said by what he did. His miracles were performed not primarily to alleviate suffering, although they did. And the people that were recipients of these miracles I'm sure we're very grateful, with only a very few exceptions, that their suffering had been alleviated. But that's not the primary purpose of Jesus' miracles. His miracles were given to validate that he was who he said he was. 
And not only that, but he should be believed. And he should be followed with unbridled passion. There are a lot of people out there that would like you to follow them. All over the world we have these Messiah figures. Most of the time, the story ends very tragically with Messiah figures. I I think of Jonestown many years ago. It ended very, very tragically. The thing that happened up in Waco ended very, very tragically with these Messiah figures. Even in Palestine in the first century, Jesus wasn't the only one that was traveling Palestine saying he was the Messiah. Did you know that? In fact, the historian Josephus tells us that there were a couple of dozen that were in Palestine at the time of Jesus in the first part of the first century that claimed to be the promised Messiah to Israel. But you can claim anything you want. You see, they could add up the the dates in Daniel as well. They could add up the 70 weeks. They knew that it was time for Messiah. And they claimed to be Messiah. And there are some very well-structured historical accounts of a few of them. But claiming to be Messiah and proving you're Messiah are two entirely different things. As I sit down and consider my own life, where it's been and, and hopefully where it's going, if there is a future to it, if it doesn't end today... But as I consider the time that I've spent and the time that I hope to spend in the future, I'm like you, and I think of things like significance and meaning and purpose. Because there's got to be more meaning and purpose in life than just entertainment, doesn't there? I know we're trying to entertain ourselves to death today. But there's more meaning and purpose in life than just who wins a football game, although I enjoy those things, or or how good a movie was, although I enjoy the cinema. There's more to life than that. And if there's meaning and purpose in this life, it it has to mean that there's something after this life. Because I've got to tell you, if at some point in time we take our last breath and then we just cease to exist, poof, we go out of existence as though we've never been here, I'm going to tell you right now, there's no meaning and purpose to us being here right now. And as the gospel record tells us, we may as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. If there's no God, if there's no meaning, if there's no purpose, if there's no life after this one, then we may as well roll it up, pack it up, go home. Consume whatever beverage you need to consume to numb the pain of realizing that there's no meaning and purpose here. But I've got to tell you, there is meaning and purpose. And the chapter that we begin to study today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is one of those chapters that gives us the, the, the reason why we're here, why we can have hope for the future and a confidence that's based upon something real. I just realized that I've been doing this 18 years now. It's coming up on 18 years. And I have forgotten my sermon before. I've gotten up here and I realized that I looked down at my sermon and it was the wrong one. I gave uh, the sermon from the top of my head. A lot of people, after I said I brought the wrong sermon, they told me, well, forget it every week because you did a lot better this week than you do when you have your notes. But I just realized something extremely embarrassing. I do have the right sermon in front of me. But I don't have my Bible. Thank you. I owe you one. Did you hear what he said? Yeah, he said at least one. That's, that's true. And you even have it open to the right passage. Thank you very much. Be nice to him this afternoon on account of this. I, I do appreciate that. As I was speaking, I said, what am I going to do? I don't have it all memorized. So, With that said, my point was that, that Jesus validated who he was by what he did. Not just by what he said, as important as that was, but by what he did. And the greatest miracle of all 
is the miracle of the resurrection that's in the chapter that we begin to study today. It's a delight for me, really, because most of the time when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, it's around Resurrection Sunday, and then we talk about it for a couple weeks, and then we leave it, we don't come back to it for another year. I'm so happy to get to this where we can actually spend a little bit of time on the thing that binds us all together as people. The thing that binds us all together is a person, and that's Jesus Christ. And we would do well to remember that. When we focus upon our common Savior, the resurrected Savior, the one who proved that he was who he said he was, by virtue of not just his words, but also by his works, the one that shows us that we can have confidence that there's life after this one because he came back from the dead. That resurrected Jesus. When we focus on our common Savior, our common Lord, our common Master, it becomes a bit easier to love one another. It becomes a little bit easier to love one another and significantly harder to gossip, to malign, and to impugn one another. By the way, viciousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And when we realize we all have a common bond in here, there are different races that are represented here. There are different age groups that are represented here. Different genders. We're all different. We have different personalities. We have different directions that we want to go in life in certain areas. We have different professions. We have different things that we do different things that we're good at and different things that we're not so good at. But there's one thing that binds us all together, and that's that we're all in union with the resurrected Christ. That's why I can love you as my brother or my sister in Christ, and you can love me. Even if we come from very divergent backgrounds, you can meet someone from another country, and if they're a believer in the Lord Jesus, they are your brother in Christ, they're your sister in Christ. Chapter 15 is critical for understanding everything that went before. We almost get tired of the Corinthian situation. It's a downer. Do they do anything right, we ask ourselves sometimes. Well, very little, apparently, at least at this point. But now in chapter 15, Paul gets theological on us. And don't let that scare you away. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, said that orthodoxy is not some dry, dull subject that should be relegated to the back rooms or to a theological classroom. It's the most exciting subject on the planet because this is what binds us together. This is what gives us the validation. The resurrected Christ is what gives us the validation for doing everything he's talked about in the first 14 chapters. The whole idea of the priority of love over selfishness really means nothing if Jesus Christ wasn't resurrected. If God doesn't exist, if Jesus Christ wasn't resurrected, then love is meaningless. In the first 11 verses of chapter 15, they read this way. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. The good news that the apostles proclaimed was that Jesus was crucified for our sins, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. I might add to that part of the good news that they preached, that that people saw him. It wasn't a secret resurrection. It wasn't a private resurrection. Oh, it begins that way. But then over 500 people at one time saw him. That's hard to fake that. In an Israeli court of law, or in a Jewish court of law, if you prefer, a person can be convicted, or freed actually, on the basis of two or three witnesses. The testimony of two or three witnesses. What Paul is saying here, as a Jew who is very familiar with Jewish law, is that there weren't just two or three witnesses to this. First, all the twelve saw him. And not just that, but 500 people at one time. And since 1 Corinthians was written fairly early in the history of the church, probably within 30 years of the event of the resurrection, maybe even sooner than that, then we are left to assume that one of the things that Paul is doing in these first 11 verses is telling us to go check this out. These people are still alive, most of them even to this day. You don't believe me? Go ask them. That's a pretty strong testimony, a pretty strong witness. And we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But I want to make sure that over the next couple of weeks we have a couple things down. And that is first, the event of the resurrection. What happened that Sunday morning? And then second, which will be our subject for next week, the significance of what happened. In fact, it might be our subject for a couple of weeks after that. Because that's what brings all of this together in chapter 15. The significance of the resurrection is what has played out already in Paul's teaching in the first 14 chapters. The first question we need to ask ourselves and answer with respect to the resurrection is when did the resurrection happen? Well, there's some debate as to the day of the week of the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, some people make an argument for Wednesday. A few people make an argument for Thursday. The majority view is Friday. We've talked about that in the past. I won't revisit that here. But there's debate, whether it's Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. But there's no debate as to when the resurrection occurred. The resurrection occurred shortly before sunup on Sunday morning. So that's the when. Texas tells us that he was resurrected. We don't have near the information about the event of the resurrection itself that we do about the crucifixion. Everything I'm going to say to you now, basically, occurs after the resurrection, after Jesus walked out of that tomb. And I want to remind you of something. The same body that went in the tomb is the body that's going to come out of the tomb. We don't want to get bogged down in some Platonic philosophy, some older Greek philosophy that would say that this body is horribly evil and horribly Uh, It it cannot be retrieved or redeemed in any way. Well, it is full of corruption, but this body that goes in that grave someday or this cremated someday is the same body that's going to be reconstituted and transformed as our resurrection body. 
that we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Meaning the body that went in is the body that came out and had been transformed. Now the one difference between Jesus Christ's resurrection body and yours or mine is that my flaws in resurrection body will be gone. There will be no scars on my body in resurrection body. Jesus, on the other hand, has scars on his resurrection body. And it's my view that he's the only person with a capital P in the universe that has a right to have scars on his resurrection body. And that, those scars will be a permanent reminder of anybody that sees him every time we see him in heaven why we're there. It's because of him, not because of us. The resurrection events of Sunday morning are among the most difficult to harmonize in all the gospel literature. All four gospels, all four gospel writers, writing under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, recorded information about what they saw that day. And all four did so from a different perspective. We need to remember that none of these sat down to write a complete history of what happened on Resurrection Sunday. They all saw the same event and recorded that same event from different perspectives. Now, sometimes skeptics pounce upon that. Sometimes skeptics say, well, wait a minute. One gospel account says there were two angels there. Another one says there's one angel there. It must, not, it must all be false. No, they're writing from different perspectives. Think back to November 22nd, 1963. 12.30 in the afternoon. I was in school up in Dallas, Texas. I was eating lunch in the lunchroom. You probably remember where you were at that point, at least a lot of you do. Remember where you were at that point, 12.30 in the afternoon, November 22nd, 1963, when shots rang out at President Kennedy's motorcade. When people wrote about that, when people reported it, they reported it from, a, from different perspectives. Now, some of the news reports, the initial news report, I think, said that shots ran out. They were fired at President Kennedy. One of the next reports came up said he had been hit. And then finally there was a report that he had died not too long afterwards. I remember Walter Cronkite. I remember him taking his glasses off and patting his eyes. It was a very dramatic moment in the history of television. Very dramatic moment as he reported that live. But, you know, there was one, more than one person hit in that car. Governor Connolly was also hit. So was Walter Cronkite telling you a lie when he said President Kennedy has been hit? Well, no, that's the truth. Was the person that came on a little later telling you a lie when they said President Kennedy and Governor Connolly were hit that day? No, of course not. Both of them are true. They're not contradictory. Now, if Walter Cronkite had come on and said only President Kennedy was hit, everybody else in the car was safe, and then later on, there, somebody came up and said, well, Governor Conley was hit. Then that would have been a contradictory re report to what had gone on before. But no. You see, that's the kind of contradiction that they are trying to bring up, skeptics bring up, with respect to the gospel record. So don't fall for that nonsense. And what's, what blows me away sometimes, we were talking about this at lunch yesterday with some friend, or Friday with some friends. These are the people that think that we're less than scholarly. And, and the... It blows my mind that they could come up with an argument like that. But what happened? After Jesus is resurrected, after sunup, there was an earthquake. Matthew 28, verse 2 records that for us. The stone was rolled away by an angel, not to let Jesus out, but to let other people in. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened, the guards, as we would expect, were so afraid that they became like dead men. That's Matthew chapter 28, verse 4. 
they leave and they go and report to the Jewish leadership. That's an interesting historical fact. Why do they go to the Jewish leadership if they're Roman guards and report first to the Jewish leadership rather than to Pontius Pilate? That has led some people to believe that they weren't part of the Roman guard. They were actually part of the Jewish guard. But it's actually more likely that they were part of the Roman guard as we see from something that comes up later. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him, and we will make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Under Roman law, if a soldier would have had a prisoner, in this case, the corpse, was, the corpse of Jesus was the prisoner, but if a, if a Roman soldier would have had a prisoner escape under his watch, the Roman soldier would be executed. And we see that one other place in the New Testament. There's another place in the New Testament you might be thinking that this, something similar happened and the guard drew his sword and was about to kill himself. And it's in Acts 16. Because at that point, the Roman guard thought that all the prisoners had escaped. And he knew that he was going to be executed if those prisoners had escaped. So he draws the sword to kill himself. And Paul yells out from the prison cell, don't do it. We're still here. So that's why later on in that passage, when that same Philippian jailer says, what do I need to do to be saved? The apostle Paul answers, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now that Philippian jailer was not speaking of physical deliverance. He's not talking about being saved from the Romans like these people are going to need saving from, these guards. He's not talking about that at all. That's one of those reasons why you need to read more than just a single verse. But all these things need to be read in their context. Under Roman law, had the prisoners escaped, he would have been. Now that speaks to Matthew chapter 28. The reason that the Jewish leadership says, you tell them that the prisoners escaped, we're going to give you this money, and don't worry, we'll help you out with Pilate if he gets mad, is because ordinarily they would have been executed. Why would the Jews have had the stroke to overturn a Roman governor's ruling with respect to executing Roman soldiers? Because you remember from our crucifixion narratives that the, that the Pontius Pilate, was at his weakest possible point at this time politically. Tiberius had already told him, one more piece of trouble over there in Palestine, and we're bringing you home, which didn't usually mean to a parade. He was going to be in bad shape. So the Jews did have the ability to say, listen, we won't raise any more Cain if you leave these soldiers alone. This is what happens in Matthew 28. Grave robbery was not uncommon at the time. In fact, it became so prevalent during the reign of Claudius that he made grave robbery punishable by death. You see, this is a theory that some skeptics even point to today, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. And you say, well, why would they do that? And they say, well, to, to start a new religion. They say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. They all denied him. They all ran away. They were all scared. In fact, they all died for their faith, didn't they? It would have been a plausible, 
plausible thing had not 500 people seen him. The second thing, or the third thing that happens, is a group of women make their way to the tomb early in the morning before dawn. Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, arrives before the other women. We don't know why. Was she younger? Did she walk faster? It's not recorded. But when she gets there, she finds the stone rolled away and runs, turns and runs to tell Peter and John. Now, if you're following this in your mind, Jesus is resurrected. The stone is rolled away by an angel. The guards freak out, and they leave. And while they're gone, the group of women comes to the tomb. Mary's ahead of the rest of them. Mary of Magdala is, a, is ahead of the rest of them. And she goes in first. Now, this is interesting because the first witnesses to the resurrection or to the empty tomb were women. Mary of Magdala was the very first witness. If someone would have made this up at a later date, they never would have done that. They never would have made Mary the first witness. Because in Jewish courts of law, the testimony of women at that time, this is not a biblical principle, this is a, this is a pharisaical principle. Not biblical, pharisaical. The testimony of women wasn't held in high regard at all. As a matter of fact, it was jettisoned. So if this would have been made up at a later time, they wouldn't have made Mary of Magdala the first witness. It's possible that the other women arrive about the same time she's leaving because she uses the plural we as she speaks to Peter and John. In John chapter 20, verse 2, Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple who Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. The other women, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna, and it's possible that Salome and Joanna are names for the same person, they arrive at the tomb. This is recorded in Matthew 28, verses 5 through 8, Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, and Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. They enter the tomb. And they encounter an angel who tells them that Jesus has risen and that they should go and tell the disciples. This is where there's two different accounts from a different perspective. Luke mentions a second angel. These women then leave. Again in Matthew, But the angels answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen. And he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Well, Peter and John, having spoken to Mary of Magdala, run to the tomb with John outrunning Peter and gets in there first. John looks in the tomb and finds it empty. Peter, impulsively, as he always does, arrives and pushes past John and enters the tomb. They both see Jesus' clothes lying neatly folded, including a face cloth that's rolled up separately, and then they depart. This is a detail not to be missed also. If, if, if this was done by grave robbers, what grave robber would have taken the time to neatly fold the clothes. It's not very likely. Many years ago, I was on a trip, and I was gone about a week, 10 days. I, I was single at the time. I came home to my house about midnight one evening, and the thing was a wreck. 
The couch was overturned. The television was down. Some things were broken. It was a complete wreck. Somebody had robbed me. The people that robbed me didn't take the time to clean up everything after they left. They robbed it and ran. Well, grave robbers wouldn't have taken the time to neatly fold the grave clothes up. This is another indication that this wasn't the work of grave robbers. Uh, Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tombs. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Very detailed account. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know, or perhaps understand, the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes. Well, as they're leaving, as soon as they've left, then Mary of Magdala comes back. And she arrives at the tomb shortly. She's weeping, and she looks into the tomb. Two angels were present inside the tomb, and they ask her, Woman, why are you weeping? Mary responds, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've taken him. She turns around and sees a man that she thinks is the gardener. It's really the resurrected Jesus. And he says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus responds with just one word. Just one word. Her name, Mary. She recognizes his voice and responds, Rabboni. He tells her not to cling to him, but he gives her a message for the disciples. And Mary Magdalene then returns to the disciples and relates what has happened. Then Jesus appears to the other women who had gone to the tomb as they're on their way to report to the disciples. All this happens very quickly. He gives them a message for the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 through 10. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. That all occurred in the morning. Sometime that afternoon, there were two other appearances of Jesus, one to Peter and one to James, Jesus' half-brother. The specifics of these conversations are not noted, but it's not unreasonable to conclude that the conversation that Jesus had with Peter included a discussion of the denials that he had made just hours before. I have no doubt in my mind that Peter humbly confessed at that moment that he had denied his Lord. It's certain also that Jesus forgave him. And you know what? It's never mentioned again. Ever. This is not something that Jesus brings up every time he wants Peter to do something. Or every time Peter has offended him in some way. Now, I remember when you 
we do that, don't we? We want forgiveness. And we want forgiveness in the same way that God forgives. That means if somebody forgives, they wipe the slate clean. It doesn't mean they necessarily forget. We can't forget in that sense. But forgetting in the biblical sense means we don't act on it anymore. We don't keep bringing it up every time someone fails. Jesus didn't continue to bring up the denials of Peter. They're never mentioned again. In the late afternoon, one of my favorite events occurs, and that's that Jesus appears to two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, which is just a short distance from Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 24, verse 22, we've studied that before. We don't have the time this morning. Our time is just about up. We don't have the time this morning to go into that, but what a conversation that must have been because Jesus walks them through all the Old Testament revelation about himself. I wish somebody would have been there with a tape of that one. We would archive that, and we, we wouldn't have to have Old Testament courses. All we would have to do is just play that tape, and it would be finished. What a, what a course that must have been. And then finally, in the evening, Jesus appears again to the disciples minus Thomas. That's recorded in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. This is an ever-so-brief summary of the events that are recorded in the scriptures of that Sunday following the crucifixion. We now have an understanding, I think, of the event itself. Next week, we'll consider the significance of that day and how we should respond to it on a personal level. We'll also see how this fits in with the overall argument of 1 Corinthians.